Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Two minutes to the start comes a voice over the public address system. Game faces are on. National flags of Great Britain, Czech Republic and Belgium are whipped up by the wind as the rain lashes down. The race ribbon is about to be cut and the wait is almost over. It's a freezing, miserable January day in 2016, day one of the Cyclocross World Championships, which have come home to Belgium. In this cycling-mad country of 12 million people, Cyclocross, a fast and furious form of off-road cycle racing on lightweight bikes, attracts as much passion as the Tour de France. And the biggest races, like this one, host rowdy crowds bigger than most Premier League football matches. It's no hyperbole to say it's a national obsession here in Belgium. The under-23 women's race is about to start and all eyes are on the season's wonder kid, Femke van den Driesche, Belgium's brightest hope. At just 19, she has already taken one major title, placing herself among the best cyclocross races in the world. With her long blonde hair and movie star good looks, she looks set to become the nation's golden girl. As the Italians get ready for racing alongside Femke van der Driesche, who is uh, the Belgian rider, who's actually been uh, European champion this year. Alongside her, this is But what transpires over the course of the next hour will pose an existential threat to cycling, one that leaves the sport teetering on the edge, staring into the abyss yet again. The worst thing that can happen at like moment at sport level, honestly speaking, the worst moment of my life about, about this. I'm Chris Marshall Bell, and from Stack, this is Ghost in the Machine, the story of sport's most fascinating and intriguing discovery. We thought that the sanctions should be pretty serious because this was a really existentialist threat to the sport. I'm on the hunt for the truth behind what led one young rising star of Belgian cycling to get caught with a motor hidden inside her bike on the very first day that motor detecting scanners were introduced. I saw they put the saddle out of the frame and I saw wires coming out of the frame. The case blew up rumours of a conspiracy, rumours that have been bubbling away for over a decade, but still she's the only one to have ever been caught. Was it the tip of the iceberg of a massive scandal that cycling continues to willfully ignore? Join me as I embark on a wild journey that will involve death threats, explosive allegations, toppled presidents, doped pigeons, and a whole lot of very angry people. I sometimes can't follow cycling because I sometimes don't believe it. And I truly believe motors were used to went a lot of big races. Episode 1, The End of Blood Doping. The rise of the motor. On the start line in Zolder, a former coal mining town about one hour's drive east of Brussels, 
A race official is holding an umbrella over Femke van den Driesche's head as the rain teams down. Femke, her blonde hair tucked beneath her helmet and resplendent in the pastel blue lycra of the Belgian national team, is on the front row. She looks relaxed, almost serene. Backed passionately by a home crowd and touted by the press as the next big thing, Femke has emerged from relative obscurity over the past few months to be listed as one of the favourites for this, the biggest cyclocross race of them all, the World Championships. She's just 100 kilometres from her home in Alst, where she's become something of a local celebrity. But win today, and she will elevate her profile into the stratosphere, maybe even land a contract at one of cycling's biggest pro teams. It's the most important race of the 19-year-old's young life, and expectations are sky high. She was lean, she trained, uh, her brothers were cyclists, so... We hoped. Green lights are on then. Here we go. Here goes the cavalry charge. The Austrians in the middle. The Italians. Peyton has got a pretty good start. The Americans are also up there. But the race then led over the line by the Italian rider, Chiara Tiocchi. After a few hundred metres of tarmac, the riders turn sharp right and hit the mud. The leaders start powering around the many twists and turns, up and over the bridge, through the sand and hopping over the steps. If you've never seen a cyclocross race before, imagine doing a Tough Mudder, but on a skinny racing bike. Obstacle after obstacle to negotiate, mud splattering into your face and your eyes, the conditions getting trickier with each passing lap. A few riders having to get off the bikes there. One of them was Laurel Rathbun of the United States of America who was running at that point. Curiously though, Femke, Belgium's great hope, is nowhere to be seen. She's not on the front group, she's not on the chasing group, she's... Nowhere. Evie Richards, uh, Ellen Noble at the front, trying to keep those sunglasses on, trying to protect the eyes a little bit from the mud. But I think After five minutes, with British rider Evie Richards comfortably leading, Femke still hasn't appeared. More riders pass, and still, she's nowhere. She's not even in the top ten. Then, on the penultimate lap, gasps from the crowd. There she is! But she's not on her bike. She's walking miserably down the finishing straight, pushing it along. Something's gone seriously wrong. The hopes of a whole nation of cycling fans lie in tatters. So Evie Richards then is the leader. A problem here for one of the Belgian riders. This is Femke van Driesche, who was one of the pre-race uh, favourites. As the camera zooms in, it's clear what has happened. It would need to be chain or derailleur related for her to walk down the finishing straight, I'm sure. A broken chain dangles off her bike, rendering it completely unrideable. Her expression is hard to read, almost blank, confused. But then something strange happens. It's as if she remembers something. She speeds up, breaks into a run and pushes her bike past the hordes of fans. Every cyclocross racer has a spare bike waiting in the pits in case of a mechanical problem. And that's clearly where Femke is heading. Maybe she can rejoin the race and salvage a decent result. Maybe even a medal in the race she was odds-on favourite to win. But then we lose Femke from view. We can only imagine what is going through her mind. What no one watching knows, not even Femke, is that waiting for her is a mechanical problem far graver than a broken chain. What happens next occurs off camera. We don't know precisely how these moments unfold. 
but we have pieced together events as best as we can from speaking with people present that day. Femke, who must be acutely conscious of the risk, enters the pits and looks frantically for her spare bike. But it's not there. She looks again. It's gone! As she continues to search, she must experience a sinking feeling. She must know the game's up. All she can do now is abandon the race and head back to her crew, to her brother and her father. Maybe they will know what has happened to the bike. Will it be there with them? But when she gets back to her father and her brother, there is no bike. Her team seems as confused as she is. What the hell has happened to Femke's spare bike? What we now know, having spoken to officials involved in Zolder, is that while Femke was racing, before her chain broke, men in fluorescent tabards were making inspections in the pits. It happened like this. Unluckily for Femke, extremely unluckily, cycling's world-governing body, the UCI, for the first time in its history, is deploying a new scanning technology to detect hidden motors. For some reason, they alight on Femke's spare bike in the pits, and like the luckiest detectorists in the world, they strike gold and set off the siren with the very first swing of the scanner. They tap the frame and pick up the bike, expecting it to be the usual Fevelite racer. But it's like it contains ballast. It's at least two kilograms heavier than it should be. Immediately, the bike is put under UCI guard, heavy surrounded to make sure no one can remove or tamper with it. It is hurried away to a secure private room within the race headquarters. That's where it is, as Femke searches the pits in vain. All the UCI officials I have spoken to assure me that the bike was not flagged up by a tip-off. Femke was not specifically targeted. But that doesn't alter the outcome for her. By now, a team of eight officials have assembled around the bike, including senior figures from the Belgium team who have been summoned. It's time to find out what set off the detector. Rudy Debye, the national coach of the Belgian cyclocross team, and someone we're going to hear from lots throughout this podcast series, guides us through what he witnessed. The chief commissaire loosens the bolt, pulls up the saddle, and removes the seat post. The moment I entered the, the place, I saw they put the saddle out of the frame, and I saw wires coming out of the frame. Now certain of what they are dealing with, officials go out into the race paddock in search of Femke. It's an hour since she abandoned the race and she found only an empty space where her spare bike was meant to be. They locate her at her motorhome and they tell her, you must come with us. They frog march her to the scene of the investigation. The door opens and she is ushered inside and there she sees it, her bike literally spilling its secret a spaghetti of wires blooming from the seat post. We cannot imagine what is going through Femke's mind. The only thing we know for sure is that her world is crashing down all around her. She bursts into tears. In the course of a few hours, she has gone from being tipped for glory, Belgium's golden girl, to facing the end of her career as a cyclist at just 19. She's going into the history books not as a world champion, but as one of cycling's most notorious cheats. Her name will be forever synonymous, not with cycling brilliance, but with the most brazen swindle the sport has ever known. Femke van Andriesche has just become the first cyclist to be caught with a motor hidden inside a bike. And it makes worldwide news. 
salvaje mecánico la desató la belga Femke van den Driesch en el Mundial Sub-23 de Ciclocross. Es ella, es belga, se llama Femke van Driesch, tiene 19 años y ahora mismo está bajo sospecha por fraude tecnológico. Motor doping, the act of concealing a motor inside the bike's frame to make the bike go faster, is confirmed. The much talked about conspiracy is real, and the cycling world is enraged. Eddie Merckx, regarded as the greatest cyclist of all time, says that it's the worst thing you can do. What has happened is very bad for cycling, he adds. Bradley Wiggins, Britain's first Tour de France winner, just can't comprehend it. You've got to ask questions of the athlete. That it's probably one thing choosing to, to blood dope or whatever. Another thing to sort of put a motor in your bike. You know, it's kind of aside from like ethically, you've got to ask you a lot of questions of the athlete anyway. Willier, the Italian brand of bike Femke was using, calls it a very serious matter and promises that it will take the issue to court. Now we are going to to study the situation and uh, probably we keep continuing with the legal action against the the riders and uh, probably the team. The UCI, the world governing body for cycling, immediately launches an investigation. Merckx then goes a step further. He demands that Femke be banned for life. As Femke presumably lies low at home, the cycling world continues to erupt in anger. Social media, internet forums and even national newspapers all demand the most severe of punishments for Femke. A little over 10 weeks later, she is handed a six-year ban and a fine of 20,000 Swiss francs by the Switzerland-based UCI, the equivalent of £18,000 or US dollars But then, nothing else happens. It's as if the problem is dealt with, the case closed. Right now, eight years on, Femke is the only rider to have been caught with a concealed motor in her bike. But the noise around the practice has grown ever louder. I've been asking questions about motor doping within the cycling world over the past year. And I've found that most officials and riders are too terrified to speak about it. It seems to be a taboo subject. Yet despite this, there are a slew of pundits, team staff and managers, as well as a few riders, including some pretty big names, who continue to claim, mostly off the record, that motor doping remains not just a big problem, but the greatest threat facing cycling since the blood doping days of Lance Armstrong. What is the truth? I know that the key to unlocking this question lies with Femke van den Driesche, a woman who was never actually banned for motor doping itself, merely caught with a motor inside her spare bike at a race. Was this sensational story of motor doping, in inverted commas, really reducible to just her, backed by a family with a rather peculiar history, or is it, as many continue to claim, another massive scandal that cycling continues to bury its head in the sand about? I'm a sports journalist specialising in cycling and every year I follow the biggest bike races in the world, speaking with the sport's best athletes. I love the drama of the pro peloton, the mountains it visits and the many colourful personalities. Have you had value for money? Whoa, that's a great question. Listen, I'm a, I'm a straight shooter. I, 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 when you ask me a tough question, I, I will answer you in a frank way. Absolutely not. At the beginning of 2023... 
I was mostly reporting on which stars were said to be the main protagonists during the forthcoming season. Motor doping was on my radar, sort of, but it was more background home than something I was actively investigating. But then, during a rainy February day in Valencia, Spain, where I live, I was casually amusing myself online when I fell down one of those YouTube rabbit holes. No, nothing sordid. Nor was I lip-syncing on TikTok. That's my secret hobby, but shh. And I wasn't signing up to the latest wacky conspiracy, but instead, my attention was captured by a video of Femke van den Driescher, footage I'd never seen before. I'll be honest, I'd forgotten all about her. Cycling had too. Femke van den Driescher, amper 19 years old and now European champion by the U23. This Flemish-language video, published a few weeks before the 2016 World Championships, follows Femke training in a park in her hometown of Aalst, Belgium. It's an introductory report, a profile of a star in the making. Back to the sound of, let's be frank, really terrible Europop. The journalist speaks about big teams coming in for Femke's services after her recent wins. It's a sign of a burgeoning reputation. I want to think about it because, yes, all these proposals came, but I don't want the pressure. Seeing her on the screen after a gap of so many years brings back memories of that fateful day in 2016. The video makes me ponder who Femke was before she became a figure synonymous with motor doping, even though she wasn't actually caught riding a bike with a motor in it. And so I start digging. I find out that she was a twice-national youth champion and in 2014 represented Belgium at the Youth Olympic Games. At the time of this video, she was riding for a semi-professional team called Club Up Mat No Drugs. The irony is not lost to me that a no-drugs rider went on to cheat with, not drugs, but a motor. Anyway, as a semi-pro rider, Femke wasn't paid by the team, but she was given a team-issued bike from the Italian brand Willia, some clothing and some other team equipment. Everything else, her family stumped up for. From talking to people around her, I found out that one of the many things that set her apart was that her support team and equipment was befitting of a top-level athlete. Whereas most of her rivals would turn up in beaten-up Ford Focuses with their bikes crammed into the boots, Femke would travel to every race in a converted horse box, equipped with a garage, a shower, a kitchen and beds. It was an enviable setup, as described by her teammate at the time, Italian Elena Valentini. Yeah, it was uh, really a big buzz. I think um, it was something different from the other team buses. I think at the beginning, what they used for uh, horses or uh, because uh, the, it was uh, really high and inside, uh, uh, yeah, it was a kitchen or a place where to warm up, uh, to have a shower. It was uh, really like a home mobile. Femke was either taking her racing very seriously or just had greater resources. But the strange thing was, her performances weren't really living up to this investment. That was until the winter of 2015-2016. If you know Femke before and, and, and her other races, it was not that spectacular. I go back to the YouTube video, and when I watch it again, I notice something I hadn't seen before. There's a moment where Femke is about to start a lap, and she lifts her back wheel up off the grass. It spins. It spins some more, and it keeps on spinning. The on-screen graphic highlights a segment as the most replayed part. 65,000 people have skipped back to check for signs of a motor that provides extra propulsive force. The video is inconclusive, but I'm hooked 
I'm fascinated. The more I dig, the more I become invested. And it occurs to me that the sport never actually found out what really happened that day in Zolder in 2016, nor the events that preceded it. The day after, set next to her consoling dad Peter, Femke gave an interview to the Belgian broadcaster Sportser, saying that the bike was not hers, but a family friend's, Nico van Mulder. I have my own train, I have my own resorts. Some of the news reports in the aftermath of the motor being found were damning. I have opened the website NRC. They wrote a comprehensive review of the family shortly afterwards. And at the very bottom of this article, if I just scroll down, there's this line, who would ever believe her? It's harsh stuff. I then find another article by Hetlast News, dated March 21st, 2016. It shows Femke finishing third in a 10-kilometre running race in the Netherlands. The journalist asks her if she is contemplating a career switch. She answers, no. A month later, there was a torrent of reports, this time in dozens of different languages. The teenage Belgian cyclist who was caught with a hidden motor inside her bike at a World Championships has been suspended from cycling for six years and ordered to pay a fine of 20,000 Swiss francs. But then... By April 2016, just two months after the motor was discovered in her bike, the Femke Farrar seems to be over. That's it. My internet search runs dry. It's as if she's disappeared off the face of the earth. Whatever happened to Femke van den Driesche? Where has she been these past eight years? Her banner's now expired. She might even be planning a racing comeback for all I know. How does she feel as a 19-year-old, humiliated, embarrassed, an outcast ostracised by the whole of cycling, and what led to the motor being installed in her bike. I had to know more. It was time for my own investigation. Femke is only one year younger than I am, and I remember what I was getting up to in 2016. As she was getting caught with a motorised bike at a World Championships, I was messing about at uni. I was even playing darts with my housemates to decide who'd do the washing up. You can imagine the state of our house. Life was about having fun. Me and my mates were barely thinking about the future beyond the next night out. But for Femke, she had made a mistake that would change her life forever. I visit her social media pages, but they are either deleted, haven't been updated since 2016, or are now private. So what had happened to this elusive, mysterious figure who had burst onto the scene and was seemingly destined for greatness? Why did a motorised bike end up in her pit? Was she put up to it? Maybe even coerced? And then afterwards, was she scapegoated to quell fears around motor doping? Do you think she was a victim? Uh, I, I'm i really uh, convinced about that, yeah. Uh, this was something that was done in her environment. And this is Joss Smets, the former technical director of the Belgian Cycling Federation. We're going to hear from Joss lots throughout this series. As I learn more about this case, I am shocked by how far-reaching the repercussions have been. The discovery of a doped bike forced a change in presidency at the sports governing body, fueled deep scepticism about performances at the top level, and led to the introduction of detection systems that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. But are these protocols really being followed? Or has cycling chosen to ignore a problem too difficult or just too damaging to confront. Is it credible that Femke is the only rider to have ever turned up to a race with a concealed motor inside a bike? 
many still suspect a code of silence, what in the dark days of blood doping was called an omerta, the Italian mafia term for keeping your mouth shut. I sometimes can't follow cycling because I sometimes don't believe it. And I tr- truly believe motors were used to, you went a lot of big races. That's not some bloke off the street saying it. That's Greg LeMond, a three-time winner of the Tour de France, speaking to the Roadman podcast in 2023. Is motor doping a pervasive conspiracy at the highest level? As big as blood doping had been in the previous decades. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. To understand the significance of motor doping and the threat it still poses today, we need to place it in the context of cycling's long history of cheating scandals. And when I say long, at the second edition of the Tour de France in 1904, some riders caught trains to get ahead of fellow racers, and others threw tacks and nails on the road to puncture the tyres of their rivals. Crazy, right? Then, in 1911, the race favourite collapsed mid-stage after his water bottle, wait for it, was poisoned by a fellow competitor. By the time the 1930s rolled around, Drug-taking was so common at the Tour de France that the race director reminded riders that the organiser would not provide the drugs. In the 50s and 60s, amphetamines, cocaine, dodgy pills and alcohol were routinely used to perk up flagging riders and dull the pain in their legs. There were even fatalities. Yet despite this, the practice continued and it was hard to separate exceptional sporting performance from the performance enhancements of drug-takers. Come the late 1980s, Systematic blood doping was rife. Blood doping has been around in its kind of very crudest forms for more than half a century now. And it became a fine art in the late 1980s and then was really ingrained into the culture of endurance sports such as skiing, athletics and cycling by the mid-1990s. This is my colleague Jeremy Whittle and he's been covering cycling since the 1990s. He wrote an acclaimed book called Bad Blood on the subject of doping. So for a a long time, principally either through transfusions or through the injection of oxygen-boosting products like EPO, blood doping ran wild. And cycling was one of those sports where it was characterised by being called as the Wild West. Um, That resulted in a tsunami of health scares and even some fatalities among athletes who were dabbling in the use of blood doping. Despite the news reports of deaths, many were still tempted, and it was easy to see why. Lance Armstrong comes across the line, winner today of the mountain stage of the Tour de France. There's no doubt that EPO is a wonder drug, that it has been able to transform donkeys into thoroughbreds, to use the well-worn phrase. 
It turbo boosts the cardiovascular system. It enhances performances by significant percentages. And also, it transforms stalled careers. Sports governing bodies were always chasing the cheats, but they were always left behind. Increased medical supervision, allied to the introduction of an EPO test, um, reigned in the very worst excesses. But the thing was, its use continued... And it got more kind of structured through the integration of fine-tuned and well-funded, carefully administered blood doping programmes. And that was what was used by Lance Armstrong and very well managed by his expert Italian doping guru, Michele Ferrari. Ah, Lance Armstrong. At the turn of the millennium, cycling, sport even, had a new idol. The Texan, who had just won his first of a record seven, Tours de France. But as we all know, it was a great big lie. When he confessed, Armstrong listed that he'd engaged in a broad range of doping products and procedures. He's Jeremy again. These included the use of EPO, the banned blood booster, blood transfusions, testosterone, cortisone, human growth hormone and activegin. It's quite the pharmaceutical shopping list. Armstrong managed to avoid being caught for more than a decade. But an FBI investigation, various whistleblowers, and finally, a January 2013 confession to Oprah Winfrey brought him down. Did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Did you ever blood dope or use blood transfusions to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. At the time, pretty much all of this passed me by. When Armstrong won his first tour, I had just learned how to ride a bike with stabilizers. I was too young to know who Lance Armstrong was, let alone be emotionally affected by his cheating. I got into cycling as a teenager around 2010, two years before every Brit went cycling mad because Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France. Watch out for this man here. Bradley Wiggins becomes Britain's first Tour de France champion. In 2016, the FMK was caught. I was already working as a freelance cycling journalist. Whenever I'd mentioned my fledgling career to people, they'd asked me if cyclists today were still cheating, and it kind of vexed me. I'd point out that new anti-doping measures, including the biological passport, a way of detecting irregularities in an athlete's blood, made it very difficult to get away with doping. The risk of getting caught was just too great. Sure, there were still occasional news reports of former pros admitting to past doping, but the instances of modern-day riders being caught for EPO or testosterone were few and far between. Cycling, it seemed, was cleaning up its act. Beneath the surface, however, rumours had started to emerge about a new form of cheating, an alternative to blood doping, which was almost impossible to detect. It was basically a free pass to cheat. It was called mechanical fraud, motor doping. Invented in the late 1990s, the idea was simple. Install a motor inside the bike's frame, hidden from view, and connect it to the drivetrain. At the press of a button, it gives the rider an extra boost of forward momentum at a decisive moment. We'll explain the how, the what, the where, and everything else in episode 2. But for now, all you need to understand is that it was, and still is, possible to propel a bike with force generated by a very discreet internal motor. A bit like an e-bike, but without the obvious huge battery giving the game away. If you take doping and you don't train, you don't go faster. If you take an engine in your bike and you don't train, you go faster. There's a big difference in, in that. This is not improving your body. This is a kind of 
of Frodo, I I'd never could imagine that a sportsman should do that. Just met again, the former Belgian Cycling Federation's technical director. Is, is it worse than normal doping for yeah, you? Yeah, for me, definitely. Because normal doping is going over a line. Yeah? And you have to stop at a certain moment and say, okay, this is the line, I don't go over that line. But it's, normal doping is still about improving the performance of your body. Yeah? But this is something out of your body. Yeah? This is something externally that is totally different. <laughs> I, and to be honest, I never had thought that anyone should do that. So if the head of Femke's National Federation was so fundamentally opposed to motor doping, just why was Femke so careless? I go to her national team coach, Rudy Debee, for answers. He has none. How did you feel? Incredible. I still have it. I still have it now. I can, I can, yeah, I can remember that, that image. From that moment, it was... Terrible. Really terrible. As I begin to explore the subject, I learn that no tests to stop motor doping were in place before 2016. In fact, the first time tests were introduced was at the 2016 Cyclocross World Championships and they flagged Femke's bike straight away. It's got me thinking more widely about the prospect of a system-wide conspiracy, similar to that of blood doping. Was it plausible, as some were alleging, that the concealed motor replaced the blood bags, the vials, and the needles. My YouTube searches take me to a string of videos alleging proof of motor doping. Et qui accélère et qui attaque de nouveau. C'est le petit Puchot qui est sorti là et c'est Fred Guénon qui est venu le rejoindre. Et c'est Cancellara. Attention parce que Cancellara il va accélérer à gauche de la route. Il a regardé, il ouais, y a personne, ouais, ouais. il est parti. Accélération de Cancellara à 50 km de l'arrivée. We're going to cover these more in depth in episode two, but briefly, there are a number of unproven allegations of motor doping involving some of the sport's biggest stars all of whom deny malpractice. They include Spartacus, Fabian Cancellara, El Pistolero, Alberto Contador, and Britain's serial Tour de France winner, Chris Froome. I'm going to say this, it's not going to be popular, but if you look at Chris Froome's Mount Ventoux, they released the file. I could, I believe, I could show you. It's, there's so many unnatural things there. After just a few weeks of investigating, my interest in Femke, principally, what happened to this young girl whose life was destroyed? has now developed into something far bigger. De Cancellara, Contador and Froome win the biggest bike races using motors. I was too young to ever be angry about blood doping, but if I found out that these heroes of my youth had used mechanical assistance, I'd be furious. I'd be livid. Then again, had I been naive in assuming the sport was completely clean? It suddenly hit me. What if Femke wasn't the only one turning up to a race with a dodgy bike? I'm a skeptic on everything. Really, I am. I, I, I sometimes can't follow cycling because I sometimes don't believe it. And I truly believe motors were used to you went a lot of big races. He promised me 500,000 euro that he never gave to me. So if you don't pay, I will talk. This was really a moment in my life that I changed, not looking for myself, not 100%, but I changed my point of view to, to human beings. There are so many ways to cheat that is almost impossible that no one never cheat with some uh, mechanical doping. I wish you all the best, uh, best of luck uh, in, search, in search for answers. You have been listening to episode one of Ghost in the Machine. New episodes will be released 
every Monday. It is presented by me, Chris Marshall-Bell, the podcast's general classification contender. It was written by myself and David Bradford, the sports director of the series. Sound design is by Tom Warley, the podcast's lead-out man. It was produced by Pete Donaldson, the road captain. A special thanks to Super Domestique, Christoph Muhl. And a thanks also to the Free Swan Years, Finn Ranson, Charlie Morgan and Katie Baxter. Chapeau. Ghost in the Machine is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network.